Welcome to the Forecasting Impact, a podcast supported by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings you the most inspiring people to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy, and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Forecasting Impact. I'm Maddie, and um, today we have a guest from mainland China that I'm going to introduce in a second. Hi, all. Sherry here. I'm excited to join once again. I'm terribly sorry that I missed out on the Nada Sanders podcast. I'd love to have been there. But we have some more exciting guests lined up, of which we have one today for you. Yes. Um, uh, so our guest is Feng Li, so I'd let him to introduce himself, please. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Feng Li from Beijing. Currently, I'm working as an associate professor at the Central University of Finance Economics. Uh, I like forecasting, and I also do computing. It was my great pleasure to attend this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for accepting our invitation. It's our pleasure to have you as well. So I'm going to start off our conversations by knowing your story. Like, how did you start in your career? I started my undergraduate study from Renmin University in Beijing in 2003. Then I moved to Sweden. In 2007, I started my master's study in statistics. In 2008, I started my PhD in Stockholm University in Sweden, uh, where I had my uh, PhD life. And I moved back to China in 2013 and started a job as an assistant professor at my university. And uh, I worked in my current university for eight years. And then we have a joint lab with my wife, Yanfei Kang. Collab. Yeah, that was my brief career. <laughs> well, it's, it's not very brief. It's been going on for a bit. Um, so you already moved to Sweden for your master's degree. That's a big move halfway around the world when you're still very young. That must have been quite the adventure. Uh, yes. At the moment, I think uh, students from my university, they wish to go to USA, and but I decided to go to Sweden because Europe is a very different place and we are influenced by US anyway. So I think it's a good time to visit uh, Europe countries just for one year study a master's. And then I thought like after master's study, I should go back to China and work. And uh, I like studying atmosphere in Sweden. And then I applied the PhD positions and studied another five years. So in total, I stayed in Sweden for six years. How was it like arriving there? I cannot imagine what it was like because I spent my year abroad in London in the United Kingdom, which is, of course, very close to Belgium. But going that far from China to Europe, how was it in your experience? Uh, yes, I think in my PhD study for the first year, I was the only Chinese student in Stockholm University Department of Statistics and uh, People are very supportive and uh, they help me a lot. You know, in Chinese New Year, we usually visit uh, home, but uh, at that time, I didn't. So at the winter time, I stay in my office and I started coding and uh, working with uh, projects. And in summertime, I went to conferences and with my supervisor and I uh, had a one month vacation. Usually I went back to China with my family. That was a life lasting for six years. 
So you, you did a study in Europe and then came back to China. China has all been, you know, I've, I have a lot of students from China. How, is it like big forecasting? Is there a big forecasting community in China? How, how is it like the university atmosphere over there? Yeah, in China, because uh, China is so big, forecasting is also demanded. So we have, uh, uh, as far as I know, we have a few hundred uh, people working in academia uh, in forecasting uh, in different disciplines. For example, people working at economic forecasting and for helping government for better planning and people working on uh, energy forecasting. And uh, um, me and my, my team, we are working on forecasting methodology development. So pretty big community. And uh, we also work with um, industry. We worked closely with Alibaba, that's China's biggest e-commerce company. We work on supply chain forecasting. Maybe probably uh, you work on that as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also work with energy companies to provide daily, also like hourly forecasting for natural gas demand for top cities in China. So the big community, yeah. but they are working on different uh, disciplines. Mm, interesting. So the connection between academia and industry in China seems to be pretty good. Like you're working on several industry-oriented projects. Is that is that true? Yeah, exactly. And people working at the university usually easier for them to get grants from the industry. And when they have specific demand, we help them to solve problems. That would be awesome for for the forecasting conference that will be held in in Beijing. Um, exactly. Yes, we look the, forward to that. Yeah. In 2023, I'm looking forward to it as much because I have to admit I have never traveled east. The farthest east that I've been is Istanbul in Turkey, so not far at all. You and should, I'm looking very should. much forward to visiting China for the first time. It will be yeah, exciting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we will welcome you. Looking forward to it. So, um yeah, that would be in 2023 in Beijing. I'm not sure where that's going to be, but is that that your university is hosting that event? Uh, yeah, it will be uh, in Beijing. I think um, three universities will co-host it. One is the Forecasting Center from CAS, uh, Chinese Academy of Sciences, uh, where Shou Yang one was working there. And another one is Yanfei's University, Beihan University, another one. Is my university, Central University of Finance Economics. We're going to co-host this event. We hope that people from the globe could visit us and we get together talking about forecasting in person, in real, in person. Yes, it will be good to have a conference in person again. We're uh, yeah, rooting yeah. for next year to be when it's yeah. in uh, Oxford, UK, for it to be in person as well. Yeah. How is it for you for teaching, by the way? Have you been teaching in person or mostly online? Uh, mostly in person. Mostly in, in China person. We have, yeah, in China, we had good control of individual cases. So students came to campus, tested, and uh, we do daily temperature check. So we do everything uh, in campus. That's good news for us to, to see that you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you have uh, you know in-person teaching. We can be hopeful to to have the conference definitely in in the you know in in Beijing in, in person, and that could be maybe one of the biggest forecasting conferences that we might have in, in you know in years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, we look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. same here. 
All right. I, I was going actually to ask you about KLAP, but before God, we moved on to this topic. But before moving to actually core forecasting problems and questions that we want to ask you, can you tell yeah. us a little bit more about your lab, KLAP, with your wife? Oh, yes. It's interesting. We had a name called KLAP, K-L-L-A-B. So K-L is like counts and the least initials, but it's not only for that. It's We make it for and knowledge and the learning. I so That's uh, in nice. our lab, yeah, we have uh, um, a few PhD students and uh, master students from our two universities. And we also have uh, good undergraduate students. And our lab, every year before the pandemic, we invite invited uh, researchers uh, and collaborators. For example, we have invited Rob Heyman and uh, for Theo Petropoulos, uh, Anastasios Panagiotelis, and also Katie Smith-Miles, uh, other people visited us. And we hope in the future we could invite more people, including you, you guys, to visit. And uh, our club focused on solving forecasting problems with uh, efficient computing tools and uh, efficient algorithms. Yeah, definitely. We would love to. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about your research focus? Um, we've looked at your publications. It seems like you're working on distributed planning and um, efficient computation. Can you tell us a little bit about your research a little bit more? Yeah, because I, I, I mentioned that I only am at my first 10 years of career stage, so it's pretty junior. So I don't have a massive publications, but if you look at into my research output, you may find that uh, they have a theme in, into statistical computing, most are relative to that, even in forecasting. So forecasting is now currently my core publication focus. And then uh, me and my group we focus on solving this type of um, real problems in, for example, e-commerce, in, in energy, and uh, for and the long and the short time series and demand time series, and um, with very efficient statistical methods and uh, computational tools that we want to provide for us. And um, we want to mention that we have very good collaborators who are really excellent forecasters, like Rob, Tass and uh, uh, for tears, and we want to have more and more visitors to visit us. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. So you're using something that, for me, is is has been quite a theoretical education, you know, in statistics, using it to solve real-world problems, and that's what I like about forecasting. You can get very technical, but you're still having an impact on business life. Yeah, exactly. I had my PhD in patient statistics. So uh, theoretical, but in patient statistics, I uh, focus statistical computing. After my move back to China, I noticed that not only we should focus on too much theoretical or methodology development, we also need to how to deploy those methods into massive data sets. For example, 10 years before, I worked with the time series for single time series about tens of thousands observations. Now I have to work with like tens of thousands time series and each time series with a few thousand observations. So it's really at a different scale. Even we work on different models, we work on theoretical models, how to put them scale up 
that was a big problem. So that shifted my interest from purely working on theoretical models to work with forecasting solutions. Yeah, definitely. That's a good pivoting. I want to talk a little bit about your paper called Forecasting with Time Series Imaging, a Publishing Expert System with Applications. You have co-authors that I want to create, give credit to them as well, but I'm not sure if I can pronounce the names correctly. Uh, Yanfei, yes, definitely. Gigi, or- yes, yes. You can introduce and also say what, what you have done in this paper. Yeah, it was like a very interesting uh, occasion that we started to write this paper. Me and Yanfei, we started working with time series features. And um, it's inevitable. inevitable people may think that time series features, like statistical features, are subjective. So people need to decide what kind of features they should use and how do they combine those features put into forecasting performance models. So we are looking into if there's a better solution to make it more objective. At that time, the you know, the advances of computing vision was really developed. So we borrowed the computer vision idea that we convert a single time series into a squared matrix uh, as a colored squared matrix. So the colored square matrix, now you can look at it into like figures. Now we can uh, use the computer vision algorithm to do the feature extraction. At this point, that uh, computer vision algorithm can better detect the features that the human being couldn't spot out. And um, using computing vision algorithm can also uh, work with uh, large scale of time series data. So that really was the initiative. And uh, we use that uh, methodology to work with um, M5 computation data. We noticed that our result is at a very good quality compared to the top, um, top two, I think, uh, forecasting results. That was a very yeah. good result, we think. Yeah. So um, when you say time series um, imaging, I I understand that you have extracted some features from the time series that you have uh, with the images that you have built. So um, how do you compare this methodology with, you know, typical time series features that we extract from data, such as, you know, trend, seasonality, and things like that we have? How do you compare them? Yeah, there are two perspectives. There are advantages with uh, conventional time series features. For conventional time series features, it is uh, interpretable. Uh, but there is a disadvantage that um, it, it can be biased. But with computer vision algorithm, you can add different layers to uh, incorporate your insights of the time series. So the deeper layer you put into the, uh, we're talking about neural networks and um, the more detailed information you want to explore. Uh, that's the one thing. And if you want to compare with conventional time series, uh, because um, layers are not interpretable. So we compared it with the forecasting performance. We use maze or SMAPE to compare the overall forecasting performance. And we could also build up a meta-lender to use our time series imaging features to classify what is the best a forecasting model for a specific time series, and that is based on time series uh, imaging models. Yeah, interesting. I think, you know, the imaging literature in general, deep learning for computer vision is really advanced that a lot of things in time series forecasting can be 
adjusted, or let's say we can employ some of the methodologies that they have there and implement them in time series forecasting context to, to get better results. So one of them is really this paper when I was looking at this to see that you can you know, extract the features automatically and then uh, you, you use them to um, forecast the time series. So it was really interesting. How is that in terms of computational cost? Is it like uh, more expensive than usual time series features extraction that we have? Um, actually, no, because we use a, a specific technique called transfer learning. Transfer learning is that we can borrow the uh, trained model from other computing vision algorithms. For example, you know this uh, uh, ResNet and also uh, uh, ImageNet computation. Image. Uh, from image computation, uh, you get uh, top-ranked models. You can borrow those models and uh, transfer that with our time series. And people may argue that uh, your time series imaging, the picture you provided with the time series is different from real uh, real life image. But we could say that we've noticed that the angles, for example, you find something from your cat, you have a small angle in the year. You also find a small angle uh, in time series when you have uh, strong connectivities. So those type of features are common in real life figures and also in uh, transfer time series imaging. So uh, we find it's very efficient to directly transfer existing uh, trained models to our result. We only need to train uh, further one or two layers to match our target that is sufficient. Um, and uh, one thing we need to mention that because it is offline training, we can always do that prior to the task. And then we can do the prediction you know, in real time. Is that only applicable to univariate or also works for multivariate or does it matter? Yeah, in that paper, we focus on univariate time series. But in principle, uh, we know that it is possible to use a multivariate time series if you think about a multi-channel. Uh, images. If you even not only consider uh, the distance, but also consider the um, uh, different statistics on different perspectives, that is also possible. Awesome. But if we haven't tried, that is a potential in the future we could do. So my last question on this, um, before getting too technical actually on this, is um, when do you suggest in general using um, you know automatic time series extraction with you know time series imaging technique that you have introduced in here? When do you suggest to using to use this? Uh, yeah. So if you focus on um, forecasting performance and you work on with large collection of, and the diverse time series imaging is a good solution for you. And also if you work in data industry, that your platform. Your data science platform is built upon these deep learning architectures. Using imaging is much easier to deploy your work. And when you use conventional time series models, you need to think about how do you put our conventional time series model into your production platform. That is a bit tricky. Uh, not every platform could absorb like our packages and uh, things like that. So it takes a little bit time. But using our imaging work that directly connected with deep learning that is almost ready for every data science platform. Yeah, interesting. I really highly recommended this paper for interested for, for people that are listening to us now and they're interested to 
learn a little bit more about this. Uh, the good thing is also coding and everything is available on GitHub. So everybody can have access and really dig into the details of it to see how they can implement it. Yeah, and, and thank you for explaining it so clearly. I mean, I'm not from a technical background and I was like, I understand. <laughs> so um, it's obvious that you're used to talking about the models and forecasting. I presume you teach quite a few classes. Which groups do you teach? Yeah, uh, I'm at uh, School of Statistics and Mathematics, but I don't teach much about statistics and mathematics. I teach the computational courses in my school, statistical computing, uh, Python programming, and also distributed computing on distributed platforms. So that uh, those are my three major courses uh, I offer to my university. I also uh, teach for Peking University for their graduate uh, classes. Uh, are they big groups? Yeah, I was going to ask actually yes. how big is your classes? <laughs> for undergraduate students, they have about um, 200 uh, audience. And for masters, about uh, 70 or 80, depends on the year. Do you find it easy or hard to teach about such technical things to young students? I had a similar question when I started to teach this kind of thing with students. And later I realized that. So if you think about uh, you work with a computer uh, is uh, essentially the same as you work with your objects, uh, work with your like a housing keeping, maintain your car, those kind of tasks. And uh, then you can always think about you work with a lot of computers and the uh, similar is like you work with a lot of people. You ask a lot of people to do the same job and how do you parallel those? How do you collect in tasks? How do you deploy tasks? That is essentially the same with uh, working with the massive computers. And you just need to say, oh, we use different languages. We just tell them, yeah. oh, use this language to talk with computer. Well, let's use English or Chinese to talk to people. That is uh, the, the secret, my <laughs> secret. Yeah, so make it very practical and, and related yeah. to, to yeah. real stuff that, that people know. Yeah, I think that's a very good technique in general, giving really some you know, notions of the real world problems, especially for us in forecasting, because we really work on practical problems that, you know, they have a lot of applications in real world problems, wherever that you look at the business, NGOs, government. Uh, I think that that's a big advantage for us and giving some, you know, real world examples can help students a lot in, you know, in understanding the concepts. Yeah, I want to um, move on to the last section. If if Shari, have you have some questions to ask before moving to the last section? No, I'm looking forward to asking our new last question. <laughs> yeah, <for> sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so, Feng, we always ask guest speakers to tell us, you know, one of their uh, favorite forecasting books that they recommend for our listeners. They can take a look at and learn something from that book. Um, what's your suggestion? Um, for beginners, I would definitely recommend Robert Hyman's Forecasting Principle and Practice book. And uh, uh, our lab even translated into Chinese. Now it's uh, freely available at Rob Hyman's homepage. So people can go there and download. And it's very useful for students to practice with cases and they have a ready to use R code and TSPO uh, and all different features. And it's very, very good for beginners. 
Awesome. And um, a paper that you would suggest, a favorite forecasting paper? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we already suggested one of them, time series, forecasting yeah, yeah. with time series. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a, a Bayesian background. So if I, uh, my first Bayesian forecasting paper into my mind, that was a Greek case, strong Greek case, optimal prediction pools. I think that is a very good paper connecting with uh, probabilistic forecasting and forecasting combination using optimization tools to select the best forecasting combination and also use the unlock predictive scores, that is a probabilistic measurement to measure the overall probabilistic forecasting performance. That is a very good uh, paper for people working at a probabilistic forecasting. I think probabilistic forecasting in future, that is, um, will be a, a very big part of forecasting. If I really want to suggest one um, paper, uh, I would say maybe I liked my gratis paper. I had a paper work with Rob Heyman. The paper's name is called Gratis Generating Time Series with Diverse and Controllable Characteristics. Mm -hmm. uh, that is also borrowed from this computer science discipline that if you want to specify what is the uh, forecasting model for a specific time series, that means that you have to determine time series features and then we could build up a model with purely trained uh, uh, simulated data. So we can simulate a large diverse time series. All of those time series are really fake. So we call it gratis. In Spanish, means free. Yeah. You could use those freely um, diverse time series to train a MetaLender. So your prediction is your forecasting accuracy and your input is the uh, feature extracted from our uh, simulated data. Then you can just build up a model from air and uh, put into your real data saying, okay, now I have, a, uh, I could predict uh, this model is suitable for this particular time series. Uh, I think it's a very good good thing for, for people with less uh, data and you really want to make a decision. Yeah, awesome. Definitely something to, to read uh, in my bucket list and our audiences, definitely. Okay, so we've uh, discussed quite a lot about your career and about your work, mm -hmm. and it's obvious that you that you work a lot. Um, you publish yeah. a lot. You teach. You run a lab with your wife. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. So if I can pry a okay, little bit, be you. a bit more Bye. informal. Bye. If you, after like a hard week of work, what do you do in the weekend to relax? Ah, yeah. Don't say work no. more. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, we work less because uh, I graduated from European universities. You know, weekend is weekend. Um, I'm a father of two sons. So, in the weekends and all at my spare time, uh, I usually work with my um, older son, uh, Kang Kang, and he's three years old. And we played in the forest close to our uh, apartment. And uh, uh, in the weekend, also do some cooking. I like to cook for my family and my wife. That's oh, awesome. nice. <laughs> so outside air and food. That's yeah. definitely a nice one to relax from a hard week's work. Yeah, Chinese food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Chinese food. Um, different types of Chinese food. And we yeah. sometimes we make dumplings, you know, and also yes. I walk. 
Uh, you know, the Chinese pan, we work with different yes. vegetables uh, together with some sausages and, um, and also make good breakfast, uh, make pan, pancakes. Uh, oh, I'm porridge. getting hungry already. It's early in the morning <laughs> for me and I haven't had my breakfast yet. So, <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. Yeah, it's life, you know. Work is just part of my life and uh, we need to have a real life, even in the pandemic, right? Yes, yeah, that's good definitely. to hear. There I like that. Yeah. Balance. Yeah. I like that, yeah. in real life. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Feng. Yeah, it's been a pleasure having you today. I, I enjoyed that conversation. And both thank you. It, you know, technical and non-technical side of it. <laughs> um, uh, I'm sure that our audiences have also enjoyed our conversation. And yeah. uh, I hope to see you in person sometime soon. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I have answered all the questions perfectly, but I tried my best. There is no such thing as a good or a bad answer. It's just yeah. about experiences. That's what we love the most, and that's what our audience loves. So yeah, thank you for also, being our guest. No, no, I like to share with my share my experience with others, and I uh, also noticed that you two guys are very good speakers. And uh, thank, thank you so much. You guys. Thank you yeah. for your um, compliment. Thank you, everybody, yeah. for listening to us. Forward to having you for the next episode. Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you like this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Forecasting Impact. Ask your questions and share your thoughts with us. We appreciate you and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.